It's good to be with you all this morning, and I do regret that my wife Lisa and our four-year-old Elijah can't be with you this morning to get to meet you and for y'all to get to meet them. They weren't able to come the last time I was here either, and I don't remember why, but I trust that the next time we come, I'll be here with the whole family, but Lucy had a great time the last time she was here, and uh, I'm sure she's having a great time this morning playing with her toys in the nursery. But as Alan mentioned, I am the RUF campus minister in Birmingham at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I've been there for two and a half years where I minister to mostly um, undergraduate students at that time of their life where they are beginning college, dropping out of college, coming back to college, transferring while they're in college, and then some of them even graduating from college. And so it's great to be able to to see y'all, most of whom look like you're out of that stage of your life and, and, and made it through it intact somehow. Um, and so it's always encouraging to get to be with y'all. And this morning we are looking at the book of Revelation because that's the book that I've been working through with my students on Monday nights at UAB. So I thought I would bring you a little bit what we have been working through from God's word from the book of Revelation. Uh, Let me pray for myself and for us briefly, and then I'll read our passage this morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, but let's pray together. Lord, in and of myself there is, there's no no good thing in my flesh, and neither is there any truth. And so I pray that you would be at work in the power of your spirit, that you would use this uh, crooked stick to draw a straight line this morning. Uh, May the words of my mouth... And the meditations of our hearts together uh, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, uh, the great shepherd of the sheep and our king. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So look with me in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, where it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to, 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 to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Of course, all people are able to understand and to see things about themselves and about God. You don't have to be a Christian to understand and see some things about God that are true. You don't have to be a Christian to understand some things about yourself that are true. Like that God exists. There's lots of people that believe that God exists. Um, all people everywhere have some idea of, the, of the, the, the difference between good and evil. That there's good and there's evil. And there's something different about the two of those. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that. All people see those things. But what the Bible says is that that knowledge, that general knowledge that all people have, is not enough to give them salvation. It's not enough for them to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and about the gospel. And I want to look at three things this morning. Unveiling, seeing, and calling. Unveiling, seeing, and calling. The first, unveiling... You see, even though we don't have enough knowledge to understand the gospel or understand who Jesus is or salvation in and of ourselves, God does reveal himself, doesn't he? And he reveals his power. You can think about different stories in the Bible where God reveals himself powerfully. But even then, when people see the power of God, it's still not enough. Because their hearts, the veil that's in front of their hearts has to be unveiled in order for them to actually respond to what's happened. This is the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel crosses the Red Sea. They see the power of God. And yet so many of them, they still can't really see, right? They grumble in the desert. And they're full of unbelief, even though they've experienced the power of God. They get water from a rock. And still, Israel sees this. And the veil in front of their hearts many of them it has not been removed and so they still cannot see they get manna from heaven um, they, they see these terrible punishments that God gives out to both Israel and to Egypt the power of God's all around them and yet the veils of their heart hasn't been re- removed and so they, they still can't see and That's the first thing that I want us to see as we look here at the book of Revelation. It it is a revelation, an unveiling about who Jesus is so that we can see him. However, unless that veil in front of our hearts is removed, we might see Jesus but never really see him. Um, You might grow up in church and be around preaching and prayer and all that kind of stuff. You're around the power of God, but until we come with our hearts humbled... Until that veil in front of our hearts is removed, like all the going to church is not going to matter. Reading Revelation is not going to matter. And John knows this, and in Revelation he says over and over again, you know, for those who have eyes to see, or for those who have ears to hear, this is the revelation for you. Because if that hasn't happened to you, then reading Revelation is not going to do me any good or you any good. And this is why the Apostle Paul prays in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul prays with the, to the, or not to the Ephesians, for the Ephesians. That would be weird if he was praying to the Ephesian church. We only do that to God. But Paul prays that God would give the Ephesians a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. 
even though the Ephesians had experienced the power of God, I mean, the ministry of the apostles was full of people being raised from the dead and miracles like that. Paul says he's praying, look, I know you've seen all these things, but I am praying that you would have a spirit of revelation in your heart so that you could actually receive God's word and receive who Jesus is. Because without that, your heart's still veiled. Scripture promises in the Psalms, he says, that those who take shelter in the Most High, I will show him my salvation. I'll show it to you if you'll come and take shelter in me. You'll be able to see it. And so that's the first thing is that this book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ to those who've had the veil removed from their own hearts. And this unveiling is for people who are in the midst of tribulation. Um, You ever been in tribulation? John and the churches that John is writing to were in the midst of intense suffering, intense loneliness, intense separation and disconnectedness. But John wants them to know, he says in verse 9, I am your partner in this tribulation. I'm with you. Sometimes you can think of the book of Revelation as describing a tribulation only that's going to come someday in the future. And John wants them to know that, no, the tribulation's now. We're in it. And he wants all Christians to know that. And we know that because the letter is written to these seven churches, which were real churches in Asia Minor at that time. They kind of went in a a circle, like if you were going to do a, if you ever go hiking and you go in a loop. And these churches were kind of in a loop. But John and the Spirit mentions seven of them, because seven in Revelation represents fullness, the complete church, the whole church. And so John wants us to see here is that Revelation is not just written to these seven churches, but it's written to the whole church, the timeless church, in all places, in all centuries, even in Pell City in 2017, that church, the church that's in the tribulation, the church that's suffering, the church that's lonely and disconnected, and weak and feels powerless. That's the church that this is for. And it's to those folks who have had the veil of their hearts removed that John is writing to. Unveiling. Next I want to look at seeing. And the book of Revelation spends a lot of time on seeing. I mean, that's really what makes it unique in the Bible, I think, is the pictures that we get of Jesus, the images that we get of Christ, of who God is. It's not a textbook, but it's more, it's more like a, a painting that God is drawing of us of what salvation is. And God knows that, that we love images. Um, that one of the commandments is against images, right? Because he knows that we're prone to make false images. What are the false images that, that you create of God? I think that one, one false image that we have of God is simply our righteousness. And we go around and all we see sometimes is how great we are. And we dream about how great we are. And we, look up in, uh, we, we, we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we fall in love all over again. Right? Because our righteousness, we tend to focus on it all the time. But that can't really be your God, right? You know, think of that person that's in love with himself all the time and no one wants to be around that person. And so our righteousness can't be what we see all the time. Another is our sins. 
You know, think of that sin you committed 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. That thing that you did or said or didn't do. Or, and, you, and you still think about it. It still comes up in your mind. And we tend to be overwhelmed with our sins. We, we replay them over and over and over. We see them everywhere that we go sometimes. Things that we've done that we know that we shouldn't. David says this in Psalm 51. That... My sins are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, God. My transgressions are always in front of my face. I see them everywhere I go. And God knows that. Which is why he's going to give us a better image to see and obsess over all day long. Because he knows that we were made to see an image. We we were made to make it our focus. Another is just... um, your daydreams, the things that you dream about, your your fantasy world, if I can put it that way. Not the real world, not the sins that you've committed, not great victories you've had in your life, but a fake world. One that doesn't really exist, but one that you much prefer to think about and to dwell on all day long. And then finally, our nightmares. And I feel like um, this has become more real to me since becoming a parent. The things that you have nightmares about. Something happening to that loved one. What if something happens to my kids? What if something happens to my spouse? And we see this stuff all day long. We don't have to try to do it. It just kind of happens. But the amazing thing about the book of Revelation is that John wants to give us a new image. The angel tells John seven times, Look, look up in Revelation. That's what the angel says. He's coming with the clouds in verse 7, chapter 1. He says, I'm, look, I'm alive forevermore at the keys of death in Hades in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 2, look, a throne and uh, the Christ sitting on it. Chapter 5, excuse me. He says, look, the lion has overcome. Look, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Look, the tabernacle of God is among men. John wants us to see something new. He wants to replace those images that we're making all the time and to give us a new and glorious image. And there's really a rich tradition of that in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. If if you've ever read the books of Ezekiel and Daniel, they're they're full of these, these fascinating and glorious and a bit strange images. If you've read these books, here's one. This is Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And do you see there, there's this glorious son of man. And the son of man comes to this other glorious being called the Ancient of Days. And he's presented before him. And the son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this is the image that John and the Spirit is picking up on here in our passage that we see before us. In verse 12 where it says, Then I turned to see this voice A voice that's so powerful, so palpable, so glorious, that it's a voice that he doesn't just hear, 
You might just skip over this on the first reading, but it's a voice that he sees. A voice that he sees, it says in verse 12. And on turning, he sees these seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. Lampstands that would have stood in the Old Testament in the temple, which is an image of God dwelling with his people. The church being this new temple of God, these new lampstands where God dwells in the midst of. And it says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his waist. What would the long robe have represented? What what would this golden sash have represented? And what John wants us to see is that he is seeing a king. He's seeing the greater king, the Lord Jesus, the final shepherd, Jesus Christ, Um, the better priest who can offer the better sacrifice. This long robe and this golden sash would have meant to these Jews, this is a priest king. This is someone in the Old Testament who's dressed in the clothes. He had the outfit of a priest. Everyone's outfit kind of tells you a little bit about them if you have some special office. And the outfit of the Son of Man in this vision is meant to tell us this is the greater priest, the greater king. The one who's come to shepherd his people. Because John's already reminded us in verse 9, I am your brother in the tribulation. I am your brother in this broken world. But I am also your brother in the kingdom. You or I are in it together. And we're in this kingdom of this king called the Son of Man. And that's why he's dressed in this long robe and this golden sash. But then it goes on to say that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool. And like snow, and if you'll remember from Daniel seven, it's the this it's the ancient of days, the old one, the oldest one, and the son of man. The oldest one, of course, conjuring up. Uh, conjuring is really not the right word to use, there, is it? Uh, causing us to have images of someone who's older, someone with white hair, someone whose hair is white as snow because of all the days that they've lived. But here in this passage, the ancient of days. The old one is the son of man himself, the one that we fall down and worship. And so here in this passage, the ancient of days and the son of man who who seem to be separate in the Old Testament and Daniel, they've now come together because the Lord Jesus is both the ancient of days and he is the son of man. He's the son of Adam, fully human, with blood and bones and sweat and hair who died on the cross, but who's also fully divine, infinite and eternal and unchangeable, the ancient of days. It says his eyes are like, um, they're like flame. His eyes were like a flame of fire, which is meant to remind us of Pentecost, of this fire that came to rest on the apostles, this fire that was the power of the spirit in their lives, and a fire that purifies. You see it throughout in the Old Testament, fire purified. And also finally, a, a fire of judgment that has been given specifically to the Lord Jesus. It's not God in general that's going to come judge the world, but it's the Son of Man, the priest, the one who died on the cross, who's been appointed to judge the world at the last day. And because of that, John sees that his eyes are like this flame of fire. In verse 15, it says that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And there, I don't have time to read the Old Testament passages 
Um, this is really like it, like a patchwork of all, so many different Old Testament images. But I think it's enough to say that there are many visions in the Old Testament where the kingdoms of the earth have feet made of clay. The kingdoms of the earth have feet made of clay. And because they're made of clay, they're weak and they're not strong. They cannot bear the weight of the hopes and dreams of humanity. The feet of the kingdoms of the earth are made of clay because they will dissolve and break and be broken. But what John sees here is one, the son of man, and his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. The feet of the son of man are strong, in other words. The kingdom of the son of man is unstoppable, and his feet can bear the weight of the world. And his feet can bear all your sickness. His feet can bear all your suffering. His feet are strong enough to bear those who are living in the midst of the tribulation, which is what John says that we're in the middle of, the tribulation. Well, I hope this image um, is, a, is a powerful one to you, one that can, one that can I trust begin to replace those images of your own righteousness, those images of your sins. Right? This is a priest, the one who died for your sins. When we look to Christ, we're reminded over and over again, you're forgiven, and I love you. Because if, you know, if we only look to ourselves, we might give up, and we might lose hope. And so John is setting Jesus Christ before us to show us God's infinite power, over the world and the flesh and the devil? Does sin still dwell in us? In Christ, there's neither spot nor blemish. Are we subject to death? He is alive forevermore. Are we weak? He is the power of God. And though his power is incomplete in us, I have not experienced all of it in my life. I'm waiting sometimes impatiently. I want more of that power in our life. He has promised to bring it to completion one day. Okay, we've looked at revealing and seeing, and now very quickly, I just want to make a couple of applications to calling. You know, John's calling, it says here, in verse 19, was to write. I'm not a writer, my English isn't that good. I talk a lot. My calling is talking, I guess, if you think of it that way. But John's calling was to write, therefore, the things that you've seen. And this morning, we've all got a calling. Your calling might be as a grandmother or a grandfather. Your calling is to be a husband or a wife. Your calling is um, to be the son or the daughter of your parents. Your calling is at work. You may not love your job. Maybe you do love your job, but your calling is there where you are. And I wonder how beginning to have our imaginations cleansed by this new image of Christ might change the way that we think about our calling. Because focusing all day long and seeing your righteousness all day, that has an effect on your calling as a husband. Right, you get really impatient because you think you're righteous, the other person's not. Or if you walk around all day long and all you ever see is your sin, that's all you see. That's going to have effect of your calling as a father 
or a grandfather. Because you're going to live in just You can't love anybody if all you think about is your sin all day long. You can't do it. You can't love people if you're in a, a, a daydream world and a fantasy world all day long. But John's promise and the scripture's promise is that in Christ, this new image of God, the Lord Jesus, can help us and transform us to fulfill our calling. As sons and daughters, our calling at our work, you know, even in the midst of, of great tribulation, that's what John wants us to see. And in many ways, John wants us to lift our eyes from everything in this world. I think that's how he would summarize um, this passage. We would lift our eyes from our righteousness, from our sin, from our dream world, from our nightmares even, to him, to the Son of Man, to this priest king, so that nothing could stop us from hanging on and keep going and fulfilling our calling. Because there are so many things in this world, y'all, that are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, from sun up to sundown, we experience things that are not the way that they should. And so we should remember the glory that we have in Christ. Glory which is ours in Christ. Jesus has made me his heritage. And so seeing that God has given himself to me, I have such an excellent inheritance that I do not worry too much about my sickness, my poverty, my loneliness, because God makes me feel that he has chosen me and he has reserved me for myself. And so as we, as we close today, I would just invite you to, to pray with me that God would help us to, to turn away from these false images that we have and to see him the true image of God, that we even might be able to fulfill our calling as Christians um, and as servants of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, for lifting our eyes towards you and for lifting our heads away from our own righteousness, away from our own sin. We pray that you would do that more and more. Help us to remember that nothing can take you from us, Lord Jesus. Uh, neither sickness, nor pain, nor rejection, nor loneliness. That nothing can take you, Son of Man, from us and the kingdom that you've promised us. Would you transform our imaginations by that, that we might be more faithful, more loyal to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.